It's New Comics Day, Wednesday, March 28th, 2018, and you're listening to God and Comics, the least stressful part of your Holy Week if you're a member of the clergy. On today's show, we discuss the award-winning graphic novel trilogy, March, that tells the story of some of the most intense struggles of the civil rights movement from the perspective of John Lewis. We'll talk about what we learned from the series and how the theme of Christian faith runs through the background. Plus, as always, we'll have our recommendation, this or that, and a whole lot more. I'm your host, Jonathan Michikin. I'm assistant chaplain at St. John the 23rd College Preparatory in Katy, Texas. On the line with me is Father Kyle Tomlin. Father Kyle, where are you? I'm at Church of the Messiah in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And also on the line is Father Matt Stromberg. Father Matt, where are you? I'm the rector of St. George's Schenectady. Guess what, gentlemen? This is our 50th episode. Wow. Can you believe it? Our 50th episode of God and Comics right here. That's Uh, hard to believe. And as a special bonus for the 50th episode, I've put together a a little, uh, little something, little audio file of few things that have been said about Father Paul Wheatley over the course of our <laughs> beloved program. So I hope that, that you all will download that uh, this week as well and enjoy. A little thank you to the listeners for uh, putting up with us for 50 episodes, basically. Okay, we're going to jump into our recommendation. You know, we're, we're talking about March, which is a very serious and very heavy book. And so I, I was trying to find something to recommend that would be a little more fun and lighthearted to kind of balance that. And what I'm going to recommend is a book called Cleopatra in Space by a guy named Mike Myhack. I'm not sure if that's how you say his name or not, but that's how I'm going to say it. And uh, it's a book for kids, which is something, I don't know if you guys have this experience or not, but ever since doing this show, I've had more people uh, ask me about what kind of comics can I give to my kids than, than I'd ever really thought about before. And it's interesting because, of course, we think about comics, or at least the popular perception is that comics are kind of a kid thing. And yet, as comics have become much more an adult thing over the years, uh, it's actually a lot harder to find kid comics than it used to be. But a number of the uh, companies are starting to put out series for kids. And um, this is the, this is the first volume in a whole series here, Cleopatra in Space. That's actually an, uh, uh, an imprint of Scholastic that puts it out. But it's a great little book. Uh, I read the first little excerpt of it three or four years ago from Free Comic Book Day, and that led me to actually go on and buy the book. It's about a young Cleopatra. So this is the Cleopatra when she's uh, just turning 15 years old. And uh, she goes out exploring one day with her friend and accidentally gets sucked through a portal that transports her into the future, even the future from us. When she gets there, she discovers that there's been a prophecy that she would show up so that she could help the people of not only the Earth, but this kind of united galactic organization to fight against this really big threat that's coming. And so they put her in school so that she can be prepared for that because she's still 15 years old, so she has to go to school until whatever the threat is shows up. You know, she's like trying to go to algebra class, but it's really boring and all this stuff, and she just wants to be out there shooting ray guns and things and... Um, it's, you know, it's really, I think a neat book for kids to look at. I wondered at first, cause actually when I first got it, I didn't realize that she was 15. I thought she was younger and that it was, you know, they were just trying to have the kids identify with another kid. But actually, as I read it with a teenager in mind, it makes sense if you think about the way that kids often kind of idolize teenagers as being sort of, um, you know, figures that they can look up to in, in a way. It's very well done. It's It's got some crazy, fun, interesting characters. There are a lot of talking cats. Who knew? Um, it's I, I love the way it's drawn. It's it's written and drawn by the same person. And it's, it's a really nice 
kind of clean, clear style of drawing that is very sort of cartoony and kid-like at times, but also uh, shows a great deal of detail on the face, which is something that I always look for in good art in comics, is how much is being communicated through the faces of, of the characters. And also, how, how well can you differentiate between characters? And I think both of those are things that he does very well. And it's something that you don't have to, you could put in the hand of your kid, and you don't have to worry about, you know, what the weird content of it is going to be. Great thing to read with your kid, I think, if they're, uh, you know, kind of getting to the age where you want to start to share something with them. So, Cleopatra in Space. I highly recommend it. And now, a word from our sponsor. You won't get away with your devilish plan, Dr. Ambiguity. You won't be able to hold me here forever. I have rights. Do you? Is that what you think? Yes. I don't even understand why you kidnapped me in the first place. I'm not that important of a person. Aren't you, though? No, I'm really not. And what's with you answering all my questions with a question? Do I? Yes, you do. Questions are so important, though. Much more important than answers, don't you think? It's in asking the questions that we really learn, isn't it? Oh, I can't take much more of this. All this ambiguity is torture. If someone doesn't help me soon, I feel as if I might die. Stop right there, Dr. Ambiguity. Oh no, it's superb, man. I'm both upset that you're here and happy to see you at the same time. I'm holding those two truths in tension. <laughs> Enough of your foolishness. I'm here to see that you are stopped for good from your wicked ways. You might think you can stop me, but you really can't stop me, unless you first learn to stop the you that wants to be stopped. Enough foolishness and riddles. I've come with a secret weapon, the one thing that your ambiguity can't compete with, a copy of The Living Church. No, please, anything but that. TLC's in-depth analysis and careful consideration of all kinds of topics, from theology to pop culture to news and events, is simply too on point for me to muddy with my ambiguity ray. And its Catholic, evangelical, and ecumenical focus brings in Christians from all different traditions united around truth with a capital T. That's right. And at $55 for 20 high-quality, glossy issues, it's just the right price for a superb superhero, such as myself, to always have in my arsenal. High-quality and affordable? Oh, no, it's a both-and. Yes, but not the kind that you prefer. TLC not only asks deep questions, it also gives readers the tools with which to explore the answers. Oh, no, I'm ruined. Ruined. Thank you for setting me free, superb man. I'm sure glad that you went to livingchurch.org and got that subscription. Hey... Did you check out all the free good stuff on the Covenant blog while you were there? You bet I did, citizen. Now run along before you accidentally get any leftover ambiguity on you. I will, superb man, I will. And may I just say, your heroics today were just, just, what's the word I'm trying to think of here, just... Superb? Actually, I, I was going to say adequate, but that works too. We are going to move now into our main conversation, which is about March. And joining us for that conversation is Bishop Matthew Gunter. Bishop Gunter served as a priest in the Diocese of Chicago before becoming the eighth bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Fond du Lac in Wisconsin. Bishop, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's good to be with you. You are the highest-ranking ecclesiastical figure that we've ever had as a guest. <laughs> so I'm hoping you can bless the podcast, Honor. you know. I'll try, I'll try not to let 
let you down. And uh, if you could also exercise the demons that exist uh, in the podcast, <laughs> that might be helpful as well, actually. That might be a very tall order. Yes. Uh, so, uh, Bishop, we, we often, when we have a guest on for the first time, like to start by asking uh, what kind of history, if any, uh, that you might have with comic books or with wider sort of comic popular culture. Uh, so I'll, I'll ask you that. Yeah, actually pretty minimal. Uh, when I was younger, occasional comic book from you know, the Archies to Spider-Man. But uh, I have to confess, it's never been my go-to genre, uh, partly because this is a, a horrible confession to make these days, but the superhero genre is mostly lost on me. Not because I'm particularly sophisticated. I can nerd it out with the best of them when it comes to Tolkien or or when I was a, when I was younger, I read a lot of things like Sword and Sorcery, you know, Conan, uh, uh, Conan and Fritz Lieber, the mouse, and Fafner, and yeah, so I can get pretty nerdy, but for whatever reason, superhero thing hasn't really clicked. Well, we have a Comics. whole back catalog of shows that can convert you if you okay. <laughs> would like. So I'm curious then, given that you're you're not usually a, a comic uh, reader, how you stumbled upon March? Well, I got it for Christmas, uh, for one thing, from one of my daughters, but the Civil Rights era in my mind is one of the great heroic movements uh, in American history or, or any history and so I've done a lot of reading about it in general and watched documentaries and uh, I think John Lewis is the real deal and I'd, I'd heard that he with somebody else had put together this graphic novel comic book of his experience with the civil rights movement so it sounded intriguing and so for Christmas one of my daughters got me the whole set and I read them. You've read all three volumes? Yes. Okay. Uh, just uh, curious uh, about the, the rest of the room. How much have, has everybody read of it? I've read all three. I am just about done the first two volumes, and I have the third, but I haven't gotten to it yet. Okay. So, uh, like Kyle, I, I, I've read the first two, but the third volume, I got them from my library, and the third volume is out. I have it on, I have it on hold. Ah. Uh. Well, you're uh, you'll you'll enjoy that. But you, you've if you've read through the second volume, you've definitely gotten into a good portion of the meat of it. I think the first volume is a lot of it is just kind of setting up and talking about his youth. Uh, but really, once you get into that second volume, it really starts to open up. So let me ask you guys what you think of March. So a lot of the history that's recounted in, in these graphic novels was was familiar to me. I mean, we you know, we learn about it in school. I've watched documentaries and I've read books about the civil rights movement. But this is a, an especially effective way of telling the story, you know, and, and maybe it's just because the comic book medium speaks to me in a, in a personal way. But the, there, there's some definitely very powerful moments and emotionally affecting, eye-opening moments in the story. I actually really enjoyed Volume 1 and getting a glimpse into um, into John Lewis's um, childhood and his upbringing. I thought that was pretty well done. And it's it's not information that I really, you know, knew about before. I, I, I like the, the narrative about him, you know, raising the chickens and... and uh, his, his fondness for the chickens. I thought that was a great way of establishing like who he was as, as a person. And he, he certainly emerges, you know, his commitment and his bravery just uh, very powerfully in these, in these stories. So I, I really liked it. And, and the artwork reminds me of one of my favorite uh, comic book artists, Will Eisner. It really seems to be evoking that his, his, his graphic style and even the you know subject matter as well. I mean, uh, Will Eisner was well known for expanding uh, what comic books can do, and, and this certainly does that. Yeah, I would concur with a lot of what Father Matt said. I certainly found it to be a very powerful graphic novel. I think it, it's well done in black and white, and I like the way that they kind of weave the story, at least early on. It, it sort of backed off in volume two. 
but they weaved it in with the inauguration of, of Barack Obama as the president and sort of gave it a forward-looking approach, which was nice instead of just having it all be centered in the past. I must confess, it's been a while since I've really read a whole lot on the civil rights movement. And so this was a nice kind of refresher. I think that it did a, a really good job of putting the events in sequence, which is something yeah. that I think I hadn't really thought too hard about or kind of put all those pieces together about before. So this was nice to kind of look at it. I think it did a, I think it did a very good job of not just kind of championing the movement, but it also admitted to some of the weaknesses along the way, to some of the frailties of the individuals involved in this. I think even in volume two, there's one moment in which, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, seems to reveal his own lack of courage. And that's nice. It's good to see the humanness of it all, because sometimes when we get history, it can be written in such a way that it just promotes the what's strong and what's good, and we lose a little bit of the reality of it. Mm-hmm. So I think that John Lewis has done a really good job of portraying it from a man who experienced it and was a part of it, of portraying it as it happened. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you mentioned that bit about Martin Luther King Jr. because, you know, I, I've always sort of thought that I knew a lot about the civil rights movement, and it has been uh, something that, like uh, like the bishop said, it has been something that, that has long been of, of uh, interest to me and is a very important, I think, moment in time, not just for our culture as Americans, but I, I think really for, for Christians um, to, to see what happens in that movement. But I learned a lot from these books about what it looked like inside of this movement, keeping in mind, of course, this is John Lewis's perspective, and there are lots of other people who would have their own perspectives that may in some cases differ from his. Uh, but nevertheless, I mean, Martin Luther King Jr. has has long been a hero of mine. And, uh, you know, he doesn't really come off great in these books, uh, I have to say. I mean, he, um, he kind of seems uh, at times almost like people think of him as being sort of self-serving in a way or, or more like a figurehead. Uh, than somebody who was who was down in the trenches. I don't think Lewis necessarily wants that to be the picture of him because he sort of pulls back in places and and accentuates things that are important to remember about King, like his letter from a Birmingham jail and so forth. But there is definitely a little undercurrent there, and certainly in the way that Lewis depicts how other people in SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, thought of King. There's some definite... Uh, feeling of we're not sure about this guy i loved reading these books and i read the second and third volume i read the first volume maybe six or eight months ago i read the second and third volume all together over this past weekend uh and it was kind of intense (laughs) to read it that way it's also kind of funny to suddenly be living in the south and be reading this um yeah but uh, uh, really, uh, really remarkably well done. Um, and black and white comics don't always keep my interest. And this did, absolutely, from one end to another. One of the things that just struck me is the parallels between this story and a lot of kind of classic high fantasy. It's a trilogy, for one thing. But, you know, it's a young guy no particular heritage he grows up on a farm taking care of the chickens a mentor takes him on a long journey that transforms his perspective and he ends up joining the resistance against this powerful evil and fights against the evil with a band of compatriots and at great risk and nearly gets killed himself friends get killed but in the end their courage and conviction intelligence and more particularly their love and their hope and their faith uh, prevail. And so it, in all kinds of ways, it sounds like a formula for Earthsea Trilogy or The Lord of the Rings or any other, you know, Star Wars, for that matter. It's, it's all the same kind of story. Uh, but this is a true story. And the main figure is a real character who's still living and breathing <laughs> right now. So, it, so part of it was just that. It, it was, you know, kind of... Uh, true expression of this kind of iconic story but then uh, kind of taking off on on what some of 
you have said one of the things that I really loved about the trilogy was the fact that it demonstrates a couple of things. One is we usually think because we, we celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day and he was assassinated and he became kind of the face of the civil rights movement. This book reminds us that it was a movement of a whole lot of folk. It wasn't just Martin Luther King's thing. And there were multiple leaders with multiple agendas. You know, there was SNCC and there was Martin Luther King Jr. and the Southern uh, Christian Leadership Conference and uh, Council and then labor movements and core. And they weren't all on the same page all the time. Uh, They all had a common cause, but there were some petty rivalries. John Lewis and SNCC are the Young Turks. And so the older guys, Thurgood Marshall makes a, a brief appearance in, early in the book and says, you know, once you've been arrested, you've made your point. And, and the SNCC guys kind of look at him, you know, and, you know, here's Thurgood Marshall. He, you know, great icon, also earlier icon of the civil rights movement, you know, argued in front of the Supreme Court to, to pass um, uh, Brown versus the Board of Education to break down segregation. So he's a huge figure. But by the time... Uh, the late 50s, early 60s show up, he's, he's an old guy. For, to, and to John Lewis and, and Snick, John uh, Thurgood Marshall and uh, Philip Randolph and Roy Wilkins and Martin Luther King, are all the, they're the old guys. And so, like often is the case, the young guys are impatient with the older guys and the older guys are trying to pass on their caution and wisdom, hard-earned. And so just that was fascinating. And, and People who we don't usually remember, uh, like Diane Nash and, and other players, uh, I just appreciated that. And in this in this telling, Martin Luther King Jr. is actually a bit player. He's this you know celebrity guy who they appreciate, but sometimes find him a bit annoying because he parachutes in when it's convenient for him, not necessarily when they think they need him. And then he's not always willing to risk as much as they're prepared to risk. Which, again, that's just a classic story, right? Anybody who is in their 30s and 40s is going to be, or were after that, a lot less risk-taking generally than somebody who's in their you know, late teens, early 20s. So there's just a whole bunch of interesting, interesting dynamics. It makes the whole movement much more three-dimensional than it's often portrayed. Having it be in black and white... I don't know if this was on purpose, but again, like genres that we appreciate uh, often, the, the good guys are real clear, the bad guys are real clear. I'm sure that in the moment it wasn't that clear, but certainly looking back, it's a pretty black and white issue. Are you going to side with Bull Connor and the guys with the batons and the, and the fire hoses and the dogs? Or are you going to side with you know uh, black people who are trying to change from an oppressive society to one where there are more equality and opportunity, pretty black and white. So to have it in black and white kind of reemphasizes that for me that there, you know there's a real clear good and a real clear not so good in this story. It's interesting that Martin Luther King doesn't come off as well as one might expect him to in this book, but one figure who comes off far better than I would have expected him to is Malcolm X, who shows up at three or four different points, I think. And the first time out, Lewis is quick to sort of mention that he didn't agree with all of the tactics of of Malcolm X or of the Nation of Islam. But as the book goes on, he kind of paints Malcolm X more sympathetically, which is also kind of interesting because that's that's the other piece too. Like we mentioned all of these different groups like SCLC and SNCC and so forth. And yet those groups, as diverse as they were and as as much competition as there might have been between them, at least had a sort of common uh, approach that they were moving towards, uh, whereas, you know, black nationalist groups had a very different approach. Uh, So that's kind of an interesting thing too just the way it gets looked at through historical lens because one of the thoughts i had reading this you know early on especially in the first volume where you see a lot more of that barack obama stuff i thought oh my fear for this is somebody will come to this 
book and write it off if they don't agree with John Lewis's current politics, uh-huh. right? Wow. If they're not like, yeah. you know, they'll look at it and go, ah, oh, okay, it's all this stuff about Barack Obama and he's just trying to create a hagiography of that guy. And so uh, I, don't, I don't care what he has to say about any of the rest of it. But, but really, I think that they, they did it in a smart way because I don't know if this is Lewis or his collaborators, but I think that 20 or 30 years from now, assuming that we survive <laughs> as a nation, uh, 20 or 30 years from now, I think people are going to look at the way they portray that with Barack Obama differently. And I say that not because I think necessarily one way or the other about the accomplishments of the Obama administration, but just because in a couple of decades' time, will be far enough away from current politics and current feelings about current politics that regardless of how history remembers Barack Obama as a president, we will remember his inauguration as a very powerful moment where – and that's really the, the thing that I think – they were trying to to communicate it wasn't so much about is barack obama going to do this or that or the other thing or is he the next great figure in our path or something but it was really just trying to show good grief look how far we've come from i'm going to get arrested for going to the bathroom in the wrong place i'm going to get beaten for trying to register to vote all the way to there is a black man sitting in the oval office yeah yes yeah, I mean, regardless of your your politics, that that day, I mean, the inauguration day was 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 a kind. Of, it was a big moment in American American history. And I remember, I, I worked at an elementary school at, at the time. I was a, a school custodian, and uh, we had a pretty good deal of African American students, and and we had the all the students in the lunchroom and we had the TVs on and we were watching the inauguration. And I I just remember looking at these kids, like these first grade kids, young black male uh, first graders and thinking like, you know, wow, like these kids are going to grow up in a country, you know, that that's very different from, from their grandparents or whatever that, uh, you know, th- th- this little boy's going to say like someone like me was was president. That that's kind of a big deal when you think that like it was it was just a generation or two before that people were being hosed down in the streets. That that was one of the things that really struck me in reading this is that you you start to think about time, and you know, as a person who grew up in the late seventies and nineteen eighties, you realize how that was not very far removed from the stuff that was going on here. And, you know, I had, uh, growing up, I had a lot of black friends. um, And to think that their parents were the ones who went through this stuff is just very moving. I mean, we think about 20 years ago from now, what's that, the 1990s, right? I mean, it doesn't seem like that long ago. So your perspective shifts as you get older, and it's just, I don't know, I found that very moving when I, when I would think about that and to think about the, what, what my friend's parents probably dealt with. Yeah. We had to go through a lot of tough stuff in the 90s, too. You know, We had to deal with uh, whether or not Ross and Rachel would end up together in the end. Um, it was the whole Limp thing. That that's true. Colbain, you know, we were all very scared of Y2K. That that was a pretty big Y2K. That's right. <laughs> big threat. That, but but you you survived. We did. <laughs> well, by the grace of God, we we made it through. Always, always. Um, so well, so I'm older than you guys. So I can remember. I, I was born in '57, so I, I don't remember very well the real high points of some of that stuff. But I, I remember when King was assassinated. It was a big deal. There is something funny about I realize about four white guys sitting around having a conversation about the movement for racial equality. Um, Indeed, but uh, but it certainly is, you know, uh, it, it certainly is a gospel value. Um, Absolutely. I, I think what's interesting too in in reading March is is having that be reaffirmed. Uh, the connecting points and the connective tissue between the church 
and the, the struggle for equality and really for human dignity. And so I, I wonder what you guys would, would have to say about that. Well, another thing that the books emphasize and, and make clear is that this, was really, this really was a church movement. John Lewis started out as a preacher, you know, young, you know, kind of made a splash initially as a teenager preaching in church. And throughout the whole movement, it was about trying to follow the way of Jesus. They didn't shy away from that, unlike apparently what they're doing with the wrinkle in time. They didn't shy away from the, the, the fundamental Christian aspect of what they were about. You know, although although currently I'm a, I'm a priest in the Episcopal Church, I didn't I didn't grow up in the Episcopal Church, and I and I wasn't raised in sort of the mainline like Protestant tradition. It was more of an evangelical tradition. And you know, one of the things that I had sort of you know absorbed through that was, oh well, evangelicals we care about the gospel. That's why we're called evangelicals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and those mainline Christians, it's just all. It's all about the social gospel, and the social gospel was almost spoken of with a bit of, you know, disdain. But thank God for the social gospel in so many ways. I mean, you know, this was an absolutely important and vital action for the church to be involved in. And I think that's really been the strength of the mainline churches is, is their emphasis on, on the social gospel now. Are we missing out on some things that maybe the evangelicals have? Absolutely. I mean, you know, we need a, a fully orbed gospel. But if, if anyone's ever tempted to sort of sneer at the social gospel, just a, a read through this graphic novel will show you. I mean, this is, it, it's not the, just the social gospel, it's the gospel. And, and it's a very in, important part of of our witness is the church the the word missing there when we sometimes when we talk about evangelicals is white evangelicals and yes exactly. I, I say that because you know i don't know exactly what the background is of every preacher or christian who's mentioned uh, in march but i imagine a fair number of them probably had something akin to an evangelical theology that they had learned mm-hmm. Or experienced, and so it's it's not like this is all just like the uh, quote unquote mainline Protestants who um, are pushing in this uh, social direction. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, but you do. I mean, you look at Dr. Martin Luther King's definitely in the you know the liberal Christian tradition or liberal Protestant tradition. I mean, the you know kind of education and background he had was is very different than what uh, a lot of folks today in the evangelical movement would would identify with. But there, there's definitely a huge divide, and, and I think it, it's it's one that for my you know evangelical brothers and sisters need they really need to wrestle with that. There's a huge huge divide between white evangelicals and the majority of evangelicals. Something maybe I also agree with evangelical. Uh, one thing that's important to point out is uh, when Martin Luther King Jr. wrote his letter from a Birmingham jail, one of the people that he addressed in that letter was the Bishop of Alabama, the Episcopal Bishop of Alabama, who was saying, mm-hmm. you know, slow down, you're, you're getting ahead of yourself. And uh, and so even, even mm-hmm. you know, mainline uh, Christians were not always completely on board. More tragically, all through that book, you know that the people who are opposing John Lewis and the movement all along the way, we're going to church on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that the church still needs to grapple with. How that, how, how did that happen? Yes. But you know, what's, what's interesting about that too, thinking about this in the long sweep of American history, I think there is something here that testifies to the truth of the gospel that we proclaim, and that is that the same religion that was first introduced to African American people, to black people, by the hand of oppression, right? Because where do we first start hearing about uh, Jesus uh, d- during slavery from the the uh, the master, right? That's where it first appears. And yet that same religion takes hold, 
takes root in the life of what became the black community in America and takes such root in the heart that it becomes the impetus for the destruction of the very system of oppression that had introduced it in the first place. That is just astounding to me that that could actually happen. But I think that is the power of the gospel at work. And you're right. There, Of course, you know, all of these folks who were uh, throwing rocks and beating uh, teenagers in the street and so forth were all showing up on Sunday morning in their finest clothes as well and, and, and claiming the name of Jesus. But, boy, it really is extraordinary the way in which when we let it, if we let it, the message of the gospel, the truth of the cross can break down some things that seem powerful and immovable. Let's talk a little bit about the emphasis that was put on nonviolence. Certainly one of the hallmarks of Dr. King's part of the movement and also part of the SNCC movement, particularly for as long as John Lewis was there. Although it is sort of interesting how he kind of depicts that as being a really strong value for some and just a kind of a means to an end for others. If there's an, a person who Lewis really seems to not like very much and goes out of his way to, to show critically in the, these books, it's Stokely, Stokely Carmichael. Boy, <laughs> he does not come off well at all. Um, yes. But what do we think about that? It's you know as a, as it's depicted in March or just in general this this sense of the importance of nonviolence because it you know th- this was very striking to me and I you know I've done a lot of reading and thinking about uh, nonviolence from a Christian perspective over the years and of course knew that this was a big thing in the civil rights movement but the, some of the most powerful scenes I thought in the book were these moments where they're training. The, the young people who are about to go down to these places and basically saying to them, you cannot fight back and you will probably be killed. Well, it's certainly grounded in the words of our Lord, is it not? I mean, if someone strikes you on the on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. I mean, there's certainly good ground for it within our Christian faith. Yeah, it's a dangerous kind of literalism, isn't it? What, what, do, you mean, what do you mean by that? But, I mean, are you, you're, you're being facetious there or...? Well, somewhat facetious. I mean, it, it's taking passages that we often would rather not take literally, mm-hmm. literally. Mm-hmm. And taking them literally is literally dangerous. Mm-hmm. And I'll just put my cards on the table because I'm persuaded that Jesus is Lord. And what Jesus said when he said he's the way, it means not just that he's the way, but the way he is matters. So I'm, I'm about as close to being a pacifist as you can be without being a Mennonite. Um too Catholic, I suppose, to be an absolute pacifist, uh, because I recognize it's a minority report overall. But it sure seems to be the thrust of what Jesus is about. And for that matter, Paul says pretty much the same thing in Romans 12 and Peter in 1 Peter. I mean, it's, it's not just, you know, a little bit of Jesus in, in a couple of the Gospels, but it's, it's throughout and throughout the early church. So I found it compelling, but I'm already persuaded um, but I also found compelling the cost that they were willing to pay, that it wasn't simple. They trained for it. They went into it as if it was battle, but they were only armed with love. One time they, you know, they shout out, we're going to bring a revolution, but it's not a revolution of violence, a revolution of love. And they were quite literally prepared to die, and some of them did. And that just, you know, I get chills just saying it now. It's it's quite remarkable even if they're wrong and you're not and you don't have to be nonviolent. that's still just a, a powerful act of raw courage and fortitude and i find it inspiring and convicting because i'm not that courageous most of the time reading the, the when when um lewis is in seminary and he's he's he you know he writes letters and he says oh i, I want to and they're great what, what was the school he went he wanted to go to atlanta he wanted to go to a different school, but it was he couldn't go there because he was black. And his, this was sort of his entry into the civil rights movement when he wrote this letter. And they said, "So you want to you want to integrate this school? You want to go to court 
to to do this and they're like well that's great and and, and, you know but you should know up front that it's going to put your family in danger it's going to have very negative consequences not only for you but for them as well and i just thought at that point like i don't think i could do it you know i mean it's one thing to put myself at danger but you know if it if it was my you know my parents or you know my wife or children that's a that's a pretty big cost it's a very complicated question too because is that right is that i mean you know here here we had like this a movement that was uh, you know built largely i mean these like young kids putting themselves in mortal danger and risking their own lives risking their families you know it's it's a very complicated question you know we we look back on it now i think and really kind of romanticize it it does seem completely black and white but you know getting in john lewis's narrative of it it, you know you do start to see like yeah this was this was a lot more radical and controversial and and complicated for for the people at the time and you can't really blame like some of the older guys like thurgood marshall for saying like well hold on a second guys you know like or you know some of the critics at the time were saying, is this, is this wise? Is this, and, 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 you know, I wonder, like, if I was their contemporary, what would, what would my position be? Would it be as clear to me in it as it is, you know, looking back on and saying, well, all those guys were heroes and they were doing the right thing and it, it achieved its purpose. And, you know, what would I have really thought? You know, what I thought like, oh my gosh, these guys are going down there causing trouble and, you know, they're getting these kids killed. And, you know, what would I think? You know, I have to really ask myself. It's a fair question to ask yourself. But, you know, one of the things that I, I think we have to sort of keep in mind, is, and I think uh, obviously I, I can't step into the shoes of John Lewis or, or Diane Nash or any of these folks, but I think one of the things that they would have said in reply to that is, you know what? We're getting beaten and killed anyway. We might as well be putting ourselves on the line for something that matters. I think this whole thing and this whole conversation looks differently if it's uh, an oppressed people having it than it is when it's when it's the four of us having it. Quite frankly, uh, oh, of course, of course, um, and and the alternative then becomes really a question between the nonviolence of groups like SNCC. Or the other approach of, you know, maybe the black nationalist groups like the Nation of Islam or the Black Panther Party or somebody like that, who were saying things that I think are a little harder to figure out how we would connect with <laughs> with the gospel on one level. But at the same time, on just a purely human level, I mean, you can totally understand why a group like the Black Panther Party, for instance, would say, you know, we're being killed in the street. We probably ought to be armed. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and, and and just from the position as like you know a, a, a white guy, of of course you know nonviolence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, like, and and, and, and oftentimes Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement are used as kind of like this like kind of moral club against. Uh, against people like oh you know they were nonviolent you know and it, it's almost. It's not really my call to say how oppressed people should respond in, in, in so many ways. I mean, against me, <laughs> <laughs> you know, of course I'm going to argue for non, nonviolence. But um, if I had to say, you know, like who, who gets to kind of lecture them uh, about that, it, it certainly wouldn't be me. Although, you know, I might have my opinions based on the Gospels or whatever, but that's... You know, that's for me to figure out when it's my turn to be oppressed rather than, you know, you know, rather than me to lecture them. I think at one point in the book, you know, they, the statement is made that, that we're dead. The black people have been dead for 350 years. And when you're dead, you've got nowhere to go, you know, and, and you can see that it's, um, I don't know how to exactly put this other than to say that something had to give something had to move forward at this point and that i mean i certainly give them a lot of credit 
for attempting to do it in a nonviolent fashion because it is so easy with our sinful human nature to just resort to violence as a means of getting what we want, right? We find ourselves backed into a corner and it's easy to come out with fists swinging, but to, to step up and try this route. And, and I think ultimately, you know, we've talked about the fact that there's a, a religious, a, a Christian component to this. They're trusting in God to make something happen in the midst of this. So I just, I see a beauty in it. I, yeah. you know. A couple of other things that strike me. One is the nonviolence wasn't just, we're not going to hit back. There was a nonviolence of speech. Their response to the abuse that they were given verbally was to respond calmly, gently. Uh, can I pray with you? <laughs> Can you imagine face-to-face with some guy who wants to beat your head in? uh, I'd I'd like to pray with you. We live right now in an age that is so violent. Our country is so violent, Mm -hmm. and the rhetoric is so violent. To have a model of folk who are prepared to embrace nonviolence in action, word, and thought is powerful. And I I agree that it's, it's very dicey for a comfortable middle-class white guy to tell people anywhere in the world how they should resist the oppression. That said, when I read those stories, I identify with John Lewis. I want to be John Lewis when I grow up. I want to be Diane Nash when I grow up. That It's just that, you know, I find those people hugely inspiring. I also find inspiring the folk, you know, white kids who got on the freedom buses and rode down knowing that there was a good chance that they could get killed too, and, and some of them got killed. They're heroes across the board, and, and I, would, I would like to think. Uh, and this is where, you know, I don't know, and I'm, you know, I'm convicted when I try to think about it, but I would like to be uh, as brave as John Lewis or as brave as the Freedom Riders or the guys who went down to register voters and, and risk getting killed. Uh, and I, I was born too late to find out, and maybe that's just as well because I don't have to live with the guilt of not doing it. Mm-hmm. Well, it would have to be a supernatural movement of God's grace to get me to, to lure me out of my comfort and selfishness. Mm-hmm. And I and I, and I think it, it, it really it really is. I mean, you look at these people. You said they were animated by a power that was greater than than themselves. I mean, it, yeah. God's hand is 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 all over the civil rights movement, and it's just apparent. And they were willing to name sin. You know, I mean, I, I can't remember exactly where it is, but there actually was one panel even where where they literally named it as sin. I think one of the reasons why it's so relatable to, to anybody who looks at it is that uh, we may not all have the experience of what it's like to be an oppressed people, but all have had the experience of being oppressed by sin, death, and the devil. And yet I, I think uh, there's a reason why the gospel spreads like wildfire when you share it in places where people are oppressed or where there's extreme poverty or where there's this or where there's that. Well, you all you all know we've had this experience, right, of, of uh, trying to sort of convert the middle, the middle class folks. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of ways that you can hide from your pain <laughs> and from the gospel when you have a couple of nickels to, to rub together and at least enough cultural clout that you can get around it. But when all of that is stripped away and you really just have nothing but your own humanity that's left, all of a sudden the cross starts to make sense in a, in a totally different way. Yeah, the oppression of sin, death, and the devil is given a very tangible form for people in that circumstance. Mm-hmm that it's not for the middle class. And even though it's still the same reality for the middle class and the upper class, it's it's not as um, in their face and experiential in a day-to-day way. And you know what else is interesting, too, is so they had this nonviolence that they engaged in, but it was also very important to them to be respectful of the law, even when they were trying to point out how stupid the law was. So in other words, like they were going to go to jail and they knew they were going to go to jail and they didn't try not to go to jail. You know, nobody tried to break them out of jail. There was this sense of uh, until we actually 
show people <laughs> what this looks like, they're not going to quite understand it. There was one line in the book, or one place in the book, where there was a sign saying, we need to have something different. We need uh, fair, fair treatment under the law. And uh, it would probably be remiss to have this conversation and not acknowledge that there are an awful lot of our contemporary sisters and brothers who uh, are black and the realities are, are have changed dramatically but racism is still alive and well in america and mm. we need to recognize that it's not that we're not by any stretch done with exercising yeah. that devil so yeah. just that last thought absolutely true well there's a lot more that could be said about march Tell us what you think. If you've read March, uh, if you have thoughts about it, connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash godandcomics. You can also tweet at us. We are on Twitter at godandcomics. We would love to connect with you there. But for now, we're going to move on to our final segment, This or That. This or that. This or that. Come on, everybody. Let's this or that. Huh? Father Kyle. You ready to uh, to get us going? All right. I am indeed. And Jonathan, I'm going to give you this first one. The Tin Man or the Cowardly Lion? I'm going to go with the Tin Man because I think he looks kind of cooler. You know? <laughs> Metal. You know what I'm saying? Yes. <laughs> okay. Next one, Father Matt. Tarzan or Conan? Conan. You know what? Um, I I haven't uh, read a whole lot of Conan. I, I you know I saw the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie when I was a kid, and it, it, like even when I was a kid, I'm like, this is pretty bad. <laughs> but um, but Tarzan, on the other hand, it, it, I've seen I've seen and read you know a lot from Tarzan. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go with with Tarzan over Conan. All right. I have a Tarzan confession. I, I, I loved Tarzan when I was a kid, and uh, I actually had my mom, uh, my mom, we had cut off jeans, my mom would take scissors and cut the the jeans jagged so that it looked a little bit more like Tarzan's loincloth. <laughs> Do you still wear them, bitch? <laughs> uh, uh, no. You don't, you don't put on those jeans and a miter and just go to town? That would be that would be a vision uh, not to behold. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bishop Matt, we will give you a relatively easy one to start, and I think we've never asked this one before, despite the fact that it has come out of Father Jonathan's mouth uh, two times uh, recently. Coke or Pepsi? Oh. Coke. Although that's a, I'm a convert, I grew up drinking Pepsi, so this is going to sound really. Yeah, but I, I drink more LaCroix. Uh, uh, LaCroix are good. My wife likes that. What is LaCroix? So, what, <laughs> La, LaCroix is essence sparkling water. Flavored, okay, flavored sparkling water. Yeah. They might as well just write hipster on the side of the can. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So what converted you from, from Pepsi to Coke? I, I don't remember. I, I, I like it better. Okay. There was a bright light. He fell just off his horse. Case. You know. That's right. <laughs> so Damascus Road moment. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Max Headroom showed up and handed him a coat. That's right. <laughs> oh, I love Max Headroom. <laughs> All right, Jonathan. Go- Google it, kids. Google it. Max Headroom. Google it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I-, I was really disappointed when they canceled Max Headroom, actually. Oh. <laughs> Jonathan, yours is Kiwi or Persimmons. I'm going to go with Kiwi because I have nothing but respect for the people of New Zealand. (laughs) Father Matt, Venom or Carnage? Venom, I mean, because Venom's the original, and he's more of an interesting character. He's villainous, but at the same time, he's the lethal protector. (laughs) Uh, He's got got that, you know, duality to his character. Carnage, I mean, is, is, is just more of a straight psychopath and... And, and, and Ven- I don't know, Venom's backstory is just far more interesting. Yeah, Venom's a much more complicated character. Yeah. Carnage de- is quite one new. Yeah. All right, Bishop Matt, right one or right two? Uh, are we talking 8 o'clock or 10 o'clock? <laughs> <laughs> you can interpret it however you like. 
Uh, probably right too, but I, I, I'm ambidextrous. All right, Jonathan, yours is Archie or Jughead. Uh, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna actually go with Jughead and uh, the Chip Zdarsky uh, uh, Jughead series in particular. Ah. Oh, okay. Have not read that. It's I'll pretty funny. I, I like his writing. I'm really enjoying his writing on Spectacular Spider-Man. Right oh, now, you so. should read. And his run on Howard the Duck a year or two ago is amazing. Yeah. Oh, that was it's one amazing. of your recommendations. Yeah, back, it's back good stuff. We're getting started. Yeah. All right, Father Matt, yours is malted milk or an egg cream. I, I, well, I, you know, there's that Lou Reed song, you know, you scream, I scream. We all want egg cream. That's right. And so I'm going to have to, just in honor of Lou, our dearly departed brother, Lou Reed, I'm going to go with the egg cream. Bishop Matt, yours is Lord of the Rings or the C.S. Lewis Space Trilogy? Probably just Lord of the Rings, but that's a tough one. All right, Jonathan, yours is Pennsylvania or Texas? Ooh. Well, since I'm now living in Texas, I guess I got to go with Texas um, because I'm going to be here a long time. So <laughs> that's, that's the safe answer. <laughs> Father Matt, New York or Pennsylvania? I don't know. I've, I've lived in Pennsylvania a whole lot longer than I've lived in New York. N- New York winter is just like longer and more interminable than philadelphia uh pennsylvania so right now i'm feeling kind of like pennsylvania is that right you know down there it's you know it's closer to spring okay (laughs) you're gonna ask the bishop wisconsin or pennsylvania is that the next one no i don't have any of those for you bishop matt i'm sorry but i will i will ask you a, a slightly different one and that is augustine or aquinas Oh my, Augustine! I, well, I've read a lot more of him. I guess um, I'm not. I've only dabbled in Aquinas. So, and there would be no Aquinas if there hadn't been an Augustine. And last round for all three, Jonathan. Yours is the Book of Daniel or the Book of Isaiah. I kind of have to go with Isaiah. I think the Father Matt. Isaiah. Yeah. Yes. Ezekiel or Jeremiah. I'm going to say Ezekiel. All right, and Bishop Matt, yours is Numbers or Leviticus. Oh, man. I could have done the last one. Numbers or Leviticus. Holy smokes. <laughs> both books you read daily, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they both kind of run together. Leviticus. That's all I've got. Well, uh, Bishop, it's been really a pleasure to have you on the program today. Is there anything that you wanted to plug it's by any great, chance? Great fun. Anything I want to plug? Yeah. Uh, Okay. Well, you can plug the diocese, I suppose. The diocese of Fond du Lac is a happening diocese if you're a priest in the Episcopal Church and looking for a good place to serve. Keep it in mind. There you go. There you go. Well, Bishop, it's it's really been a pleasure. And uh, sit there uncomfortably for a moment as I do the uh, final remarks for the program today. Thank you. Uh, you can find out more about some of the rad stuff we talked about on today's show by going to our show page at godandcomics.com. While you're there, you can give the show another listen. You can also find us and subscribe to our podcast through iTunes. And while you're on iTunes, please consider giving us a rating and a review. It only takes a moment of your time, but it means a great deal to us because it helps other people to find the show. Our theme music, which you are hopefully banging your head to right this minute, is by Father Paul Wheatley, who just doesn't think that what he does on his own time behind closed doors while wearing a kangaroo costume made entirely of cheese is any of your business. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Michigan. I'm Father Kyle Tomlin. I'm Father Matt Stromberg. And we'll see ya.